at the believer's judgment, every believer will be recompensed for their deeds. And in our last session, we looked at one of the most vivid descriptions of this. Here's the text. Look at it from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. No man may lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's the foundation. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. And this gave us key concept number one. I've put it there in your, in your notes so you don't have to do anything with it. It's, there it is, number one, though. There are two kinds of materials to use to build on the foundation of Christ. And we looked at the, the mature and the babe, the meat eaters and the milk drinkers, the carnal versus the spiritual. These incredible texts in Hebrews and uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, especially where you see this, there's, there's two ways to build on the foundation of Christ, but, but everyone who builds on Christ is saved. And then look what happens in verse 13. Each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. Isn't that interesting? And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on, it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." And we saw the great Old Testament picture of this, one of the great ones, Jehoshaphat the king, godly, faithful, lived in faith, did amazing things for God. And yet, near the end of his life, he allied himself again, trusting in humans. He built ships and his works were broken. Although he, of course, was saved. Every, all of us expect to see King Jehoshaphat, such a great and godly king uh, in heaven. Um, but his works were broken, or if you will, burned up. And here's key concept number two. The Christian isn't tested by fire. The Christian, because the foundation of Christ always stands, right? The Christian isn't tested by fire, but their deeds and works are. And so tonight we're going to add some details to the foundation that we established last time. And we'll do this by answering a key question. A key question. So here we go. And uh, this is important enough. It's what will drive really everything tonight going on. It's in your notes. How could the believer whose sins have been covered, covered and atoned for, right? That's what it means to have the foundation of Christ. How could the believer whose sins have been covered and atoned for suffer loss, your last blank there, suffer loss when they stand before the judge? How could that happen? And to answer this question, we'll go through a series of biblical passages and see the kinds of losses that would be suffered at the believer's judgment. Loss number one. Ready? Here's your blanks. The pain of having our words spoken in secret made known. The pain of having our words that we spoke in secret made known. We find this loss expressed in Luke chapter 12. Look at this. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. And notice 
This was spoken to both believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. As we know, everyone will be judged, believers or unbelievers. So notice what a powerful warning this is. When we're talking about other people and maybe even gossiping, we should remember that even though we may whisper it in private today, there will come a day when everything will be shouted from the housetops. So we should consider whether what we're saying would horrify us if the person that we're talking about ever heard what we said. And we should remember that any facade will be exposed that is about what we said about them as it's shown, especially if it's different what we said to their face versus what we were saying potentially elsewhere or to others or in secret. So think of it this way. If we've repented our sin of gossip, say, if we've repented our sin of gossip and we have a critical spirit, perhaps, or if we're two-faced, if we're deceitful, if we repent and turn from that, it will be forgiven and covered by the blood. But that doesn't mean that we still won't suffer a loss at the judgment because those forgiven sins will still be made known and all will be revealed and everything said and done in the dark will be heard and seen in the light. We're going to see more texts that show this. And this leads to an obvious change that this should make in the words that we say when we're talking about people. Ready? Here's your blanks. If we really understand what will happen at the believer's judgment, it will dramatically change how we talk about others. Remember, what is spoken in secret will be shouted from the housetops. So if we really let this biblical concept sink in, will it shut down our words of gossip? Absolutely. Will it teach us to consider our words before we speak about others? This is one of the effects that the judgment seat of Christ should have on us. Loss number two. The pain, here's your blanks, the pain of realizing how unjust our judgments were and how fortunate we are that the true judge is so merciful to us. Look what you wrote in. <clears throat> the pain of realizing how unjust our judgments were and how fortunate we are that the true judge is so merciful to us. Despite all of the warnings against us taking on the role of judging others, there's such a universal temptation to justify ourselves. It takes a relentless pursuit in our hearts and minds to keep us from falling prey to the sin of judging other people. In Romans 1, there's a particularly insightful warning about believers judging other believers in this case. And it couldn't come at a more poignant location in the biblical text, because as we'll see and be reminded of from last time, the proximity to the very issue that we're talking about, the judgment seat of Christ, is in this chapter. Look at this from Romans 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. And now notice this incredible section of things that tend to divide the church. One person has faith that he may eat all things, and he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. But you, 
Isn't this interesting? But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For, here it is, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. At our judgment, at the judgment seat of Christ, we're not going to be giving an account for anybody else, for me alone. So when we stand before Christ, we'll suffer the pain of him pointing out how many logs we had in our own eyes while we spent so much time trying to remove the specks out of others' eyes, obviously from the parable that Jesus taught. And we'll recognize how much less we should have thought about others' and how they were living, and how much more we should have focused on how we were living in this life. Notice the judgment seat of Christ. We will be saved, yes, yet so as through fire. Loss number three, the pain of finally acknowledging, the pain of finally acknowledging how little we actually know. Paul gives us a great reminder of how, to, how incomplete our knowledge is. Look from 1 Corinthians 13. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. For now we see in a mirror dimly. What a testimony. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. Think about this with me. Somehow, Paul was able to look past all of his biblical learning and all of the revelations that God had given to him directly, those three years in the Arabian desert where Jesus told him things that not even angels get to hear. And he was somehow able to look past his renowned theological insights and still humbly recognize how little he knew of the vastness of God's truth. Think of Paul saying that he saw as in a mirror dimly. And this gave him the freedom to set aside disputable matters and trivial differences and to stay focused on what really mattered. But many of us, when we stand before Jesus, we will be appalled as we look back at our confidence in our theological doctrines, our particular ones, our specific beliefs. If we hadn't humbled ourselves here, if, we, if that's not what we're doing now, taking Paul's route, we see dimly. We see enough, but we still see dim, dimly. But if we haven't humbled ourselves here, then we'll be forcibly humbled by the crystal clear recognition of just how little we really understood in this age and how fallen our intellect is. Even with God's grace, we're so prone to err. And we'll also see the arrogance of our denominational pride. And listen, for those who are part of independent churches, we'll also see our non-denominational pride. Don't think for a minute that there's no theological arrogance among the non-denominational or independent churches. Some churches that are independent, become so enamored with their own that they can even detach, ultimately, as you know, from orthodoxy because they got a new thing going. And so we'll stand with a sense of deep conviction for the divisions in the church that we allowed to take precedence over our calling to unify the body of Christ. 
and we'll become aware of how petty so many of our differences were. And we'll suffer pain, the pain of realizing just how silly and irrelevant the world thought our divisions were. And what a stumbling block our theological idiosyncrasies were for many unbelievers who looked on from outside and were mystified by how much doctrinal arrogance and internal fighting they saw among God's people. Remember, they're watching us and they'll know we are Christians by our love. When we really recognize these things at the judgment seat, it will be painful. We'll be able to be saved, yes, but notice the judgment seat. And notice the key question we're asking. Our sins are covered. How could we suffer loss? Notice, we'll suffer loss, we'll be saved, yet so as through fire. Loss number four, here's your blanks. The pain of knowing that even on our best day, we still had many flaws. When we stand before the perfect Christ... In all of his glory for the first time, we'll see with piercing clarity how far below his perfection we fall. We'll be in the boat with the Galatians where they received the letter from Paul saying, you foolish Galatians. But this isn't just an issue for the Galatian church. It's an issue for every follower of Christ. Think about this. Even the apostle James who was renowned for his his faithfulness, who was the the leader of the Jerusalem church, he fessed up to his many flaws. And in his epistle, he said, look at this, I've put it in your notes, just a brief section there from chapter three, verse two, but look at this. For we, for we all stumble in many ways. What a remarkable thing for the brother of Jesus, the writer of a biblical book, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and an apostle to say, we all stumble. So at the judgment seat, we'll all be acutely aware that even on our best day, we still had many flaws. And we'll realize how many things we messed up and how many cues from the Lord we missed and how bad our attitudes were sometimes and how totally, absolutely, completely dependent upon God's grace we were and are even when we are at our very best. Loss number five. Loss number five, ready? The pain of knowing that while our sins are forgiven, they still affected our descendants. Oh, this is an important one. Look at this. We see this principle illustrated after God delivered Israel from Egypt. They brought, he brought them to Canaan. And you probably know all the spies that Moses sent in, they verified that the promised land was incredible, but 10 of them reported that the giants were just too powerful. And Israel rejected God's plan to take the the land. And because of this faithlessness, the adults were sentenced to wander and die in the wilderness. That's the 40 years. But there was also another consequence, and it's stated in Numbers chapter 14. Look at the text in your notes. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. And, oh, listen, parents, They will suffer for your unfaithfulness. Now, you may be aware of the passages that clarify that the consequences of the parent's sin actually play out for four generations. That's right. The sins of the parents have horrible consequences in the lives of their children and theirs and theirs and theirs. 
all the way to their great-great-grandchildren. You see, sinning parents are incredibly selfish. Think about this. Because they make their descendants pay for their sins. Listen, there's no sin that only affects me. There's no sin that only affects you. And that's true in real time, but it also spans across time. In fact, some of us may be watching our sins play out in our children's lives even now. But the sad news is that's only the beginning of the damage that our sins perpetuate on future generations. So next time you consider choosing your way rather than God's way, remember that there won't only be consequences for you, but also for your children to the fourth generation. And now, back to the judgment seat of Christ. Even with our sins forgiven, we'll still suffer the loss of knowing that they impacted those who came behind us. In the presence of Jesus, we'll become acutely aware of how costly our sin was, not just to us, but to others. At the believer's judgment, this is one of the ways that our works will burn up before our eyes and will cause us to suffer. While we will enjoy the amazing grace that saves us from sin and allows us into God's presence and into heaven, that salvation will be, as Paul said, as through fire. Yes, suffering even in heaven as we stand before the perfect king. And this gives us two key concepts. Number one, here's your blanks. What we do in this life will matter long after we're gone, both for good and for evil. Oh yes, it, the faithfulness of the parents are visited for a thousand generations on the children. Isn't that amazing? But remember, what we do in this life will matter after we're gone, both for good and for evil. And key concept number two, here's your blanks, the joys of heaven, the joys of heaven won't alter the fact that our sins still had consequences long after we were gone. Notice something. This is one of the reasons why the classic theologians place such emphasis on believers coming to hate sin like God hates sin, because the ramifications and the destructive nature of sin multiplies over time, even when the sin has been forgiven. So let me ask you, do you take sin this seriously? Do you guard against its destruction in your life and in the lives of others? Do you hate sin like God hates sin? Loss number six. Loss number six. Write it in. The pain of recognizing how many people we left behind that we could have brought with us. Look at that. The pain of recognizing how people were left behind that we could have brought with us. See, the Apostle Paul had an incredible focus on spreading the gospel. If you've ever read his epistles, you would know that. This is grounded in three unwavering attributes of Paul's life. Ready? Attribute number one. Here's your blank. Paul was utterly convinced that Jesus is the only answer. Utterly convinced that Jesus is the only answer. Attribute number two. Paul was absolutely clear that everyone is lost. Everyone is lost apart from the gospel. And attribute number three, Paul was relentlessly, he was relentlessly concerned for those who didn't 
know Christ. Look at that. Utterly convinced Jesus is the only answer. Absolutely clear everyone is lost apart from the gospel and relentlessly concerned for those who didn't know Christ. So in this absolute commitment to spread the gospel, Paul was a model for every believer through the ages. Listen to his single-minded focus in Romans chapter 1. Look at the text there. Paul, here's how, the, how Romans starts. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Notice how carefully he states this. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And now, back to the issue of the judgment seat of Christ. Let me give you a picture. We stand before the Lamb who was slain for our sins, who suffered the death that we were due. And then he says, my friend, enter into eternal life that I made possible for you. Come live in my presence forever. But then he pauses and asks, my child, who else are you bringing with you? Who did you help snatch from the clutches of the enemy? Who's here because of the life that you lived and because you proclaimed my name? Who's here because your eyes were always open and because you relentlessly were looking for more people to bring into the kingdom? Who's here? And now let's pause and look at the key question that we began the session with. Look at it. How could the believer whose sins have been covered and atoned for, suffer loss when they stand before the judge? At the believer's judgment, when we hear the question from Jesus, child, who else are you bringing with you? Now, think about it. It doesn't sound so puzzling, does it? To think how we could suffer grief as we think about what we could have done for others during our time on earth. And now we looked at the issue this way. It's obvious how Paul could say about the believer's judgment. Listen, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work, which he has built on, remains, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Loss number seven. The pain of knowing that while our sins are forgiven, they still brought scorn upon the one who forgave us. Look at this one. The pain of knowing that while our sins are forgiven, they still brought scorn upon the one who forgave us. One of the biblical concepts that our current Christian culture seems oblivious to is how much damage is done by sin in the life of believers. There's ever the risk of misusing the fact that the blood of Christ covers all of our sin. The risk is to misuse the truth in Romans 5 that, you probably know it well, where sin abounded, look at this, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Where sin abounded, what an incredible doctrine. Grace abounded all the more. But Paul was aware of the risk of misusing this truth. So guess what he goes immediately into? 
he immediately warned the church in chapter 6. Here he brought up the absurd, but apparently almost inevitable heretical reaction to the truth that we just read by pointing out, Paul points out the disaster of those who respond by saying, look at the next text from chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Because remember, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Shall we say then, are we to continue in sin so the grace may increase? And Paul, of course, reacted to this, this unthinkable concept in the most vehement, loud terms. Look at this. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Listen, for the one who has died is freed from sin. So Paul talks of this incredible deliverance from slavery and walking in the newness of life, the old self being dead and gone. He proclaims the unfathomable benefits of living the Christ life in this world. But he warns us of what happens if we live in God's grace of forgiveness, but we don't allow him to go on and give us the grace of transformation, the grace of of sanctification, the grace of holiness. You see, there's a flip side to this incredible opportunity that Christ gives us to walk in holiness through the indwelling Holy Spirit, Romans 8, for instance. And to show this flip side, I'd like to briefly look at one of the most famous sins reported in the Bible. I'm talking about David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his setting up the death of her husband to try to hide his sin. We'll pick up the story where Nathan, the prophet, tells David what David believes is a man's treachery, a story of a man's treachery, a rich man who, who hosed a poor man. He's just, he's livid. And only then to find out that the prophet is telling his story. At this point, David has already declared in his anger his own death sentence in his misplaced righteousness. Look at the words that expose David's sin, starting in verse 7, chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Look at this. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to this many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord in doing this evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have made his wife your own wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. And now Nathan goes on to list the three horrendous consequences of David's sin. They're horrible. And fortunately, David confesses and repents of this sin. And because of this repentance, Nathan announces 
David's forgiveness from the Lord. Look at verse 13, this, the, the, the gospel in the Old Testament. Ready? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's that true confession, that repentance. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sins. You shall not die. But now, in a verse that's often glossed over when this passage is taught, Nathan announces a fourth consequence of David's sin. But this consequence is unlike any of the other previous ones. This isn't a proclamation of punishment or penalty like the first three were. No, the fourth consequence is a pronouncement of the greatest consequence of David's sin. Here it is. Look at verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Oh my, there it is. Look at this gigantic truth given in the midst of the prophet announcing that David's sin has been forgiven. Yes, you will not die. You will have eternal life. Your sin is forgiven. But look at this and write it in. You ready for the greatest consequence of sin in the life of a believer? Here's your blanks. It creates the opportunity for unbelievers to blaspheme God's name. And now let's think about the implications of this issue from the perspective of the judgment seat. Imagine us after Christ has returned for his bride and we're experiencing the incredible joys of paradise and basking in the beauty of the Redeemer, but also at a level that we've never comprehended before, we'll now fully understand that even though our sins have been forgiven and buried in the deepest sea and separated from us as far as the east is from the west, nonetheless, these sins that we have committed as a believer gave occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. Forgiven? Yes. But horrendous consequence? Absolutely. See, we'll realize that our sins were one more excuse for lost people to disbelieve God. It'll be one more chance that our transgressions might have been the best argument that unbelievers had to justify their unbelief. Imagine an unbeliever's best argument against God being what they see in the life of a believer in that God. And now we're finally in a position to really understand how it is that we could be in heaven and in the presence of Jesus, saved, redeemed, forgiven, covered by the blood, and yet still suffer loss. Listen, and let this soak in. At the judgment seat, our greatest pain will come as we fully comprehend that our sin led others to ridicule the Savior, to blaspheme the Redeemer, and to scorn the name of our God. My friends, the worst thing that could ever happen to us is for the words spoken by the prophet Nathan to be said about us. Listen to his words again. And the next time you seriously consider stepping out of God's perfect will for your life, consider this horrible judgment. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sins. 
you shall not die. However, by this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Church, may we resoundingly declare with the Apostle Paul, may it never be. May it never be that our deeds, our words, our actions would give occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. So tonight, this teaching has been heavy. The judgment seat of Christ, the doctrines from the scripture, they're heavy. But the great news is, there's also a powerful message of hope in the judgment seat of Christ. And we find this in our application. Ready? Here's your application. Knowing what the scripture teaches about the judgment seat of Christ transforms our entire understanding of what it will mean to receive the rewards and the crowns. Look what you wrote in. Knowing what scripture teaches about the judgment seat of Christ transforms our entire understanding of what it will mean to receive the rewards and the crowns. Now, perhaps everyone watching is familiar enough with the scripture to know the great promise that's awaiting all who've been saved by Christ. We'll hear these most beautiful words, maybe in all of the text. Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And part of this blessing will be that the Lord will bestow crowns and eternal rewards on his followers. Now, many believers may seem almost embarrassed or even a bit selfish to think about receiving crowns. Isn't it a bit self-serving to desire to be rewarded? After all, won't it be good enough just to be there? Won't it be good enough just to be in the presence of Christ? Won't it be good enough to just be in heaven? But now we've come to realize that receiving the crowns will be a result of living the kind of life that brought glory to God. Think about that. Receiving the crowns will be a, a result that brought a legacy of faithfulness to our descendants. And it left a witness that brought others to Jesus. That's what the crowns will represent. See, what, what it'll mean to have built with gold and silver and precious stones on the foundation of Christ is that we left an impact on eternity that will multiply forever. Because, notice, the fruit of that faithfulness that lived on in the lives of the people that we influenced will expand into eternity. That's what the crowns will represent. That's why the word teaches that we'll actually cast our crowns before the Lord. And this means that we'll recognize, we'll totally get it. Even our faithfulness, all of our righteousness, our rewards, and our crowns, they all really belong to Jesus. And we will fall at his feet and put them back and cast them before him when we realize that everything we have and everything we are and everything we'll ever be, even in heaven, even in eternity, will all be because of his amazing grace that transformed us into the kind of people who could receive rewards. 
So if we're a bit hesitant to desire receiving the crowns and the rewards, we should recognize that what they'll mean is that by his grace, we lived a life worthy of our calling and that this was exactly the kind of life that helped Jesus save his world. In other words, our crowns won't be for our praise. Rather, our crowns will mean that we allow Jesus to make us the kind of people who he could use for his great purposes. And this gives us a key concept. Your last blanks. Ready? Our crowns won't really be for us. <laughs> this is so cool. Remember? Casting them back to Jesus, falling at his feet in worship. Our crowns won't really be for us. They'll be for Jesus and for others. And this is why, as soon as we receive them in awe, we'll recognize that we only have the crowns because of our Redeemer's work in our lives, and we will fall down before him and say, Lord, every reward, every crown, every bit of goodness and righteousness, everything I did well, all belongs to you. And now that we understand this, I'd like to finish tonight by reading some of the great passages that anticipate what's coming when Jesus rewards those who have faithfully followed him. Look at this with me, starting in Revelation chapter 11, about the midpoint of the tribulation, ready? And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great. From Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. From James chapter 1, ready? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you consider various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be, ready, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember, that only comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is only Christ's righteousness, lacking nothing, being given back to him because he gives it to us at a gift. Notice, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. There it is. Look at that. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And from 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at this. The time of my departure has come. So Paul realizes finally he's going to be, if history's right, he's going to be beheaded at the decision of the Caesar. Ready? The time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in the future. Look at this. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Guess when? The judgment seat of Christ day. The righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only to me, listen church, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Is your whole life consumed with seeing Jesus and anticipating Jesus. Everything that you do, if you allow him to do that in you, 
you are laying up rewards in heaven which cannot be expressed in human words. So as we finish, let's look at one of the most powerful of all the biblical texts that proclaim what's coming when Jesus will be highly exalted at the end of time. Here we see the 24 elders expressing the powerful worship that we will all experience around the throne. Look at this from Revelation chapter 4. This is incredible scripture. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And you ready? Look at them. And they will cast their crowns before the throne. And the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book, the book of life, and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads upon myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So I end tonight with two questions. In this life, is the way you're living preparing you for that day? In this life, is the way you're living preparing you for that day? And in that day, will you have lived in such a way that you have crowns to cast before the mighty king? Let's pray. Oh Lord, how your scripture convicts us. Lord, how flippantly we have often perhaps said, well, all that matters is that you get into heaven in the end. Oh Lord, what the judgment seat of Christ teaches us is there's way more than just getting in. And that Lord, in this life, what we should be about is your business of living with love and holy holiness and the, the righteousness expressed in the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, and that that should bring such a pleasing aroma that it draws others to you. So that on that day when you say, have you brought others with you? We will be able to say, Lord, by your grace, because even my witness was only because you gave me the faith and the words and the truth. But yes, Lord, I was faithful by your grace to the witness. And Lord, look at these who are here. And Lord, that those who come behind us will say, yes, they were faithful. And yes, <coughs> they will say, yes, we benefited from the life that they lived, filled with the Holy Spirit, with purity, righteousness, love, humility. And in that day, Lord, may we receive crowns that we will then immediately 
simply give back to you because you are the righteous one. Thank you for the work that you will do in our lives, Lord. May we by faith follow and obey. We love you, Lord. Amen.